Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So for this evening's talk, I'd like to talk about the, um, the tenth wholesome state, the last wholesome state that um, I teach in, in the course and write about in the book, and that is uh, the joy of simply being. All the other states that I've um, been sharing and uh, inviting you to cultivate <clears throat> have been a cultivation, a kind of doing. What's this? Um, but um, but this, this state is different. Instead of trying to uh, develop something like gratitude or love, loving oneself or loving others or compassion um, or um, living with integrity or mindfulness even or developing a wholesome intention. This is uh, really the, the culmination of the of both this program, but more importantly, of the Buddhist path, where at some point you stop all your trying and simply let yourself be. Let life move through you. And in that openness, in that allowing, complete allowing, there's a freedom that is available to us all the time if we'd only um, learn how to access it and remember that it's here. We are so used to being in a culture, not just the Buddha 2,500 years ago talking about this, but particularly in our culture where there's so much emphasis on accomplishment and also um, busyness, getting things done, that it, it takes some real practice and can even be a revelation to see that the happiness that we are yearning for is right here when we stop all of our doing. And I wanted to read uh, something to you. Actually, this is what, the first time that I've done this. I left my paper uh, back in the room, but here it is on my smartphone about <laughs> smartphones. So, um, not just about smartphones, but you'll get the idea. This is from my uh, my favorite writer, uh, and maybe some of you are familiar with with him. Uh, his name is Mark Morford. Anybody read any Mark Morford? He's the best for me. Every Wednesday on the internet. That, that's my big hit. Oh, it's Wednesday, Morford. Um, 
he's funny, he's cynical, he's brilliant, he's edgy, he's spiritual, he's irreverent, he's everything. Um, this is uh, an article that he wrote last year called, um, I'll just read part of it, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. <laughs> That's the title of it. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking. And it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because... Well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? (laughs) I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? (laughs) What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting somebody's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? (laughs) Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? Uh, um, It's fascinating and, yes, terrifying, this idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all that you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. I'll go further down. We, where is it? Oh yeah. We are by and large an utterly terif- We are by and large utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing, so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning bit I just read in The Atlantic, More data was created, by the way, uh, in this study, it went up to the year 2005. More data was created up to the year 2005. In any 48-hour period in 2010, more data was created up to the year 2005 than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years in a 48-hour period. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. Mm. 
It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the CCTV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn (laughs) as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands. Time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do ten things in an hour or one thing in ten you can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. So what we're doing here is extraordinarily radical. To stop and breathe and simply be. And when we can do that, we actually can feel life as it moves through us, as it expresses itself as us. And otherwise, we feel somehow disconnected from not only ourselves, but everything around us and life itself in our hurrying up to do more. That's why it takes some practice and a few days of settling down. And I really want to honor the fact that you've gone through that settling in period and maybe you started to feel a little bit more like you've landed in the last day or so. But for most people, as I said, about two or three days to just stop all the momentum and the busyness and then you see, oh, it's actually possible for there to be some stretches of presence And when you have it, when you've been um, fortunate enough to give yourself that opportunity, it's so wonderful. Oh, why be anywhere else? Holy cow, life is happening right now. And that's what, what really fills us with joy where you don't need to add anything more onto the experience or take anything away to make it more worthy of your attention, where you can simply relax and be. What this really is um, an experience of is deep contentment. There's a fullness right in the moment. A few years ago, I, um, I was visiting with Ramdas in, uh, in Hawaii. And as I, 
I think I mentioned he is one of my is one of my mentors and, and main inspirations. And uh, I was <clears throat> was visiting him, and uh, he's if you if you don't know him, he, he wrote that book "Be Here Now," which changed my life and and many people's as well. Um, and uh, he said that he was writing a book. He was writing about contentment. And I said, oh, wow, cool. Well, do I, I don't want to have to wait until you finish the book. Could you kind of just give me the gist of it? You know? Or do you have any secret? What is contentment? What have you discovered? And he said, yeah, I can tell you in just one sentence. Said, oh, great. He said, plumb the depths of this moment. So simple and so real and so true that if we stop our looking outside for anything more and just go deeply into this moment, there's a fullness. There's the being that we are um, opening to. So how do we open to this being. You might find that you've just automatically fallen into it. Um, I, I had a, a lovely conversation with, with somebody um, after the silence was broken who was saying, and it was their first retreat, just in the middle of a step as they were walking, they just got it. Oh my goodness. I can just be. How Amazing, how fantastic. I said, oh great, I'm going to be talking about it tonight, but much better that you get it yourself rather than me saying it to you. Because it's the direct experience of it that we see for ourselves. This is not just a good idea. It's miraculous to open up to life fully. And there are some things to um, explore in this allowing for a simply being. One is uh, what we've spoken about. Spring gave a a talk on it earlier on in the retreat, uh, and it's come up a little um, since, but I want to underscore it again, the attitude of equanimity. We had it today in that last part of the uh, four-part Brahma Vihara exercise, Equanimity, which is the, it's the last of the four Brahma Viharas, as we did in the last building as you, as you go in. How many people are in equanimity here? Uh-huh. Do you get a hit of that every time you walk in the building? Ah, yeah. It's the, last, it's the final of the four Brahma Viharas, the last of the ten paramitas, paramis, perfections that, that start off with generosity as, as uh, um, Deborah was talking about this morning, this afternoon, all the different perfections including wisdom and honesty and loving kindness and effort and patience and virtue, they're all leading up to equanimity is the full flowering of the awakened heart or just before that awakening happens equanimity. And in the seven factors of awakening, 
Equanimity is the final one after mindfulness and investigation and effort, energy and joy and calm and concentration. The full flowering is equanimity out of which the awakened heart uh, emerges or shines through. Because when we are in complete balance and not doing anything, something naturally emerges and shines through. Equanimity is not indifference. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It looks like equanimity, but it's very different. Indifference or apathy, it's like, oh, it's cool, I don't care. Uh Uh-uh. Equanimity is completely engaged with life, but there's a kind of spacious stillness that allows for everything to just arise and fall on its own. It's an understanding of the natural unfolding of life, the natural unfolding of karma, where we don't have to control or make things happen. We certainly can participate. We certainly put our whole hearts into caring. But it's the equanimity that says, okay, after you've done everything you can to just allow life to unfold. Or as Ajahn Sumedho, again, who I've quoted from uh, before, his simple equanimity phrase is, it's like this. Joy is like this. Sadness is like this. Fear is like this. Love is like this. Not, oh my goodness, how do we get out of it? But rather, okay, can I open up and simply acknowledge fully and experience fully this moment of life? And that takes courage because we want to have things safe and secure and feel protected as best we can from dangers around, but to simply have the courage to see, okay, this is the way things are, and to be willing to open up to it, even when it's an unpleasant sensation in the, in the body or an unpleasant sensation or feeling in the heart. You don't want to stay with it so long that you get struggling and confused, but to open up a little bit at a time and see, oh, there is this capacity of the heart to be with this too. That's where our real strength and confidence gets developed. There will be times when you can't just move a little bit and come, in, come back into comfort. This is a kind of preparation for that. Or there will be times when things are so, um, so hard that happen in our life that you can't just say, oh, I'll just entertain myself in a different way. But to say, okay, Life is giving me this as well. It's like this. Wow, this is hard. 
and somehow the human heart can learn to open up to it and not be completely um, devastated and um, stop our appreciation for life. It's like this. So equanimity does require some courage and some um, willingness to show up. But this is where we get our strength. And uh, what's coming to mind is a story maybe some of you have heard. We used to tell it on retreats a lot. It's just coming up now about um, this Zen Zen, uh, monk... Uh, whose uh, countryside was being ravaged by uh, by a very um, fierce samurai who was um, very um, very much determined to uh, frighten everybody that he could, and his army would come in and and everyone would flee or else uh, obey him and uh, he goes to this town and everybody hears that that he's coming this warrior is coming and he gets the report back from his scout and uh, the scout says well everybody has fleed in uh, in fear of you ah except one person who the uh, Zen monk at the uh, monastery the abbot of the monastery and he goes into the monastery and he sees the monk, and he comes in fiercely wielding his sword, and he comes up to the monk, and he says, Monk, yes, do you see this sword? I'm somebody who can run you through this sword, with this sword, without batting an eye. And the Zen master says, And I, sir, am one who can be run through without batting an eye. And with that, the samurai warrior puts down his sword, bows, and leaves. Equanimity takes courage to really be willing to be here for it all. So in the equanimity practice, we say... The words are, I am the owner of my karma. My happiness and unhappiness depends on my actions, not on my wishes for myself. And the same, you say it to others, you are the heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not, on my, not only on my wishes for you. <clears throat> So this is where equanimity balances that compassion that we talked about. It keeps it from getting overwhelmed. It balances the the joy instead of getting so swept up and over-exuberant like you sometimes see at the end of um, sports championships where a city can get spun out and turn over the cars like happened last week in, in Market Street in San Francisco. Wow, this is great. And they lost their equanimity. (laughs) And equanimity keeps love 
from moving into attachment. I love, I really love, I need, I want. Equanimity says, yes, I love, and this person has their own journey as well. So equanimity is just allowing for people to have their own journey and for ourselves to have our own journey and realizing that what really determines our journey is the way we are in the world and the habits that we create. <clears throat> on, uh, on one retreat, I had a, a really strong uh, understanding of equanimity. I had been doing some Brahma-vihara practice. It was a six-week period of Brahma-vihara practice. Um, and I did some, I did metta for a while, went through all the various categories, and then compassion, and then sympathetic joy, and then I got to equanimity. Uh, and I started doing uh, those phrases that I just said. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And at first it seemed a little cool, but... Uh, not cool in hip, cool in cold and not caring. But when I saw the power of really just surrendering to the karmic unfolding, especially when I realized that it also incorporated a caring heart, um, it, was, it was incredibly um, liberating and exciting. And I had this one meditation where I imagined different people in my mind that would that came to my mind and each one I'd send the phrase, you know. And Jane came up and just saying, you are heir to your karma and just telling her the good news. Oh, this is how it works, you know. And my friends came up and each person was like, I was sharing the wisdom for myself and also, oh yes, this is how it works. And then at some point my son, Adam, who is now about to be 26 in a couple of days and was 10 at the time, um, came into the seat. And that was a different feel. Oh, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness, unhappiness depends on your actions, not solely on my wishes for you. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, wait a moment. Can I... Wait, I... I want to protect him. I want to make sure his life is okay. And I had what um, I have since called my clockwork orange sitting. If you've ever seen the, the movie Clockwork Orange, where they, try, they deprogram um, Kirdullah, the, 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 uh, the protagonist, with these various you know, dis, uh, images that kind of change his brain, right? I had the images, all the images of every parent's worst nightmare. There was drug addiction. There was disease. There, was, um, there were accidents. There was uh, untimely death. There was all kinds of things. And each time, and I'd say the phrase, and then I'd have an image. And I go, <gasps> and I go, you are heir to your karma. 
And that continued, it was for actually over an hour that I just hung out with all of those awful images. And after a while, over time, I just finally got, I can root for him, I can love him as much as I can and do, but it's not up to me to run his life or protect him from what lessons he needs to learn or his own karmic journey. And with that, there was a great loosening. It was a a major shift in my parenting. It was a real letting go and just allowing for him to be just who he is. So this is a practice I really invite you, uh, whether or not you do the formal practice or just see the power that comes from just allowing. It's like this, whether it's beautiful or ugly or challenging or grace. Ah, and I can open up to this moment in life. That is a major step towards simply being, not fighting and letting go of the control that you never had in the first place. That leads to another level of being, which is the experience of trust and surrender. Surrendering that control, you can actually begin to trust in life. It's not trusting that everything is going to work out. The word sadha is sometimes translated as faith or confidence and often as trust, but it's not faith that everything is going to work out because things are out of our control and life throws us many curveballs but it's trusting that the awareness can meet the moment and we can respond wisely to whatever we are presented with. And it's trusting in that natural unfolding. That means not figuring out. Not, there's a value to, to sorting out and reflecting But when we are trying to figure out, figure our way through, then we get caught often in our mind. And somehow when we can let go of that figuring out, to hear the truth, hear the wisdom inside, we can open up to this being. This is from uh, somebody who sat their first retreat, this is a number of years ago, who wrote me, Uh, a letter at the end of the retreat. And she was having a really hard time just trying to figure out over and over. And I said to her more than one time, it's okay, you don't have to figure it out. And finally, at the end, she got it. And she she wrote this. The one thing that is indelible in my brain is finally getting you don't have to figure it out. That would 
never ever register in my mind as an option before. Yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my mind, thinking round and round, trying to figure out. And then this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. So simple. Just letting go of the figuring out and simply coming into what's happening right now, there is that trust that things will sort themselves out and you'll get the the information you need in due time. And part of this joy of being is in the stopping and letting go of control and the trusting there is a greater and greater connection to hear the truth that's right inside. I said this in in one of the groups. Uh, I think of this practice as just learning more and more skillfully how to listen to the truth. We're hearing the truth right now. Oh, here's breathing, and here's a sound, and here's a feeling. Here's a sensation, and here's a thought, and here's the breath again. And the more you're skillfully developing that capacity to listen to the truth in, that mo- in this moment, you more and more are also developing the capacity to listen to the truth that's right inside of you. And as I, I said uh, in the group, uh, I love the figure, the Tibetan figure of Milarepa, who you can always tell it's Milarepa in the, in the Tibetan tankas because he has his hand to his ear. So if you see this kind of pose, oh, this is Milarepa, the great Indian yogi, fierce yogi who gained full liberation after much, um, much struggle and a long, hard journey. And there he is finally awakened listening to the 100,000 songs of the Dharma. And as we are learning more and more to listen to the truth in this moment, we can hear the truth that's right in our hearts. And it's here calling us all the time. We often just miss it because there's so much static going on. And so we think, oh, should I do this? Should I do that? And there's that tightness that comes in the mind. That is not the voice of truth. But when we hear the voice of truth, when we hear the wisdom right inside, ah, we know it. Think of times when you have gotten clear on the truth. Okay? When you've made a really good decision in your life. 
Think of, think of any, in fact, I'm just invite you for a moment to think of a time when you just got clear about something. Might have been a, a challenging decision that you were trying to sort out, and then it just became clear. How did it feel? How did you know that it was the truth? Okay, you can open your eyes. I'm curious, just a few different uh, responses. How do you know when you're in touch with the truth inside? My body just uh, settled down. Body just settles down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Yes. No more planning ahead. No, planning of the tape. Oh, no more playing of the tape and the story. It's just the story stops and then it becomes clear. Yeah. Many different ways. I'm not saying there's any one right way. I just knew. How do you just know? It just felt right. It just felt right. Uh huh. It just felt right. And that's, there's a key word there. It feels right. You can feel it in your body. And she said there's a kind of settling down. Uh, any other cues that you know that you can sense? Yeah? What's that? It gives courage. It gives courage, okay. So there's some courage and, and strength. Anything else? Yes? There's relief. Relief, yeah, from the tension. Ah, Yes. Else. Yeah. Recognize your projections and then what? You see through them and they fall away. Yes. Okay. So it just becomes obvious and the projections fall away. There's many, many different cues. You might feel a, a sense of support or kindness or wisdom or clarity. You can feel it in your body and you can also feel it in the mind relaxing. Remember we talked about the unwholesome states as being contracted and the wholesome states as being expansive and there's an ease and a relaxation. This is distinguishing between the voice that the mind is chattering, which is usually the voice of fear, and the voice of Clarity, truth, and love. And I have a, an axiom that, I, that, I, um, that I've been living by for a while. When I can see it and I feel that fear is running me, I, don't, I have a, a commitment to take fear out of the driver's seat. I imagine in my mind, I put it in the passenger seat. I put a seatbelt around it. <laughs> I put a a helmet around it so that it feels safe and secure. And I honor it and say, yes, I really respect and honor you and I want to take care and treat you well and with love, but you don't get the keys to the car. (laughs) I want to wait until wisdom gets the keys and takes over. So... It's really as we relax into this joy of being, we are more connected 
with the truth. It's right inside of us. And it takes listening, quiet down to listen. And then we have more of a sense of trust and of ease and opening. Uh, an image that I, I like to use also for this process is, um, I don't think I said it here, about learning to swim. I might have said it in one of the groups. Did I talk about learning to swim here? So remember when you, if you know how to swim, when you first learned how to swim and somebody put you in the pool, you know, if it was a pool, unless they put you in the ocean, but hopefully it was a a pool. (laughs) Uh, And they said, here, go ahead, you can do it. You know, they might have given you a few pointers and go ahead, you just, just relax, you know. And you're going like, whoa, relax, I'm going down here, you know. And you're kind of struggling and bobbing up and down. And they say, just relax, just move your hands gently, you know. And after a while, there's that magical moment where you kind of get treading water and less is so much better. Oh, yeah, all right, this is a bit safer. And then there's the completely magical moment when you stop all effort and you just sit back and float. And there it is, when you stop all you're doing, there was the water ready to support you all along. But it took a little bit of courage to be willing to stop the doing and see, ah, Life is supporting me. And it's the same metaphor for our, our life. Certainly you want to do everything that you can to make your life go as beautifully as you can. But at some point, the doing is extra. And so to trust that you can just relax. And that means trusting in life. As I don't know if I, I don't remember if I said it here. Uh, one another line by Einstein. He was so brilliant in, in so many ways. But he said, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask him or herself is, is the universe friendly or not? Because if we live in fear, and certainly there's lots of things to be fearful of, we are so vigilant that we are not in the flow of life. But when we see that life is here to support us, if we let it, and if we can trust in the awareness, ah, then we can be in the rhythm of life. And that leads us to the last level of being that I want to talk about. And this is that mysterious everyday being that is available to us at any time. People talk about enlightenment, nirvana, or nibbana, and think that, oh, it might be something, you know, 20 lifetimes from now or 200 lifetimes from now that I might experience. But actually, it is much more available than we realize. There's a beautiful treatise or essay that you can Google, of course, um, 
called Nibbana for Everyone. Nibbana is the Pali translation for the word Nirvana. Nibbana for Everyone. And it's written by the great Thai master Ajahn Buddhadasa. He was one of the, the most respected um, Theravadan masters of the last centuries, number of centuries. He, he lived in the uh, 20th century. He died in the late 90s, uh, died in the 90s, I think. And he talks about the fact that we are experiencing moments of great peace all the time. If we weren't, we would go crazy with the overstimulation. But from time to time, we know these moments of well-being, whether it's in the middle of nature, where you just stop and pause and relax, or a moment of connection with yourself, or maybe you're lying down and you just rest and there's an ease. We have these moments from time to time, only we usually miss them. And if we can get very familiar with them, we can cultivate that experience of simply allowing ourselves to come to rest. We can be in the most beautiful place and not know this place of rest. I, I, when I was in my uh, uh, early, uh, in my 20s and early 30s, uh, I, um, I used to go traveling. I was a school teacher and I would go each, uh, each summer to, uh, to travel around, and I travel around Europe usually. And I remember this one time I was on a Greek island, like the most ultimate paradise one could imagine. Everything, beautiful sun, beautiful beach, beautiful uh, water, good friends around, food, the taverna was there every 24 hours a day to come and, and feed. And I was so depressed. <laughs> Wondering about my life. Where, how is it going to turn out? When am I ever going to be happy? Will I ever find the right person? What's my real mission in life? And I was going round and round it took me about three weeks to be on Greek islands before I finally started to get the idea, oh, wow, I'm in paradise. <laughs> hey, this is, this is really nice. You know? What if I stop trying to figure everything out? Oh, that, was, that was a big one for me. So it's not about where you are. In fact, once you start getting familiar with that, that place of peace, which is supported, say, by coming to Spirit Rock or doing, um, doing retreats or meditating, but that place of peace that perhaps you've touched from time to time here is something that's not living here in Spirit Rock. It's living right inside of you, and the more you get familiar with it, 
the more you can take it wherever you go. That's the amazing thing. That's why we come here to meditate, not just so that we can feel good at Spirit Rock, but because these conditions are supportive of us to come to that place of home. And that it's with us wherever we go. As soon as we, more we learn to come to rest in it. There's a a really um, uh, wonderful practice that this one teacher, Greg Kramer, has. Uh, He he, uh, developed this, uh, this method called Insight Dialogues about coming into this being, this joy of being, where he says, when you find yourself spun out, he calls it pro, P-R-O, pause. It's like you hit the pause button. Relax, take a few breaths, and open. Pause, relax, and open to your experience right now. Open in that letting go of the grip and just being here. Pause, stop the internal dialogue for just a few moments. Take a breath, relax, and open. And particularly if you've touched that place of openness and beingness, then you can rest in that and you know what it's like. And your gift of your own beingness is extraordinary. It is a gift to everybody around you. You know when you're around somebody who is centered and just present, it kind of reminds you that it's okay for you to just stop and stop trying to be anybody other than who you are. This is an incredible gift that we give, not just to ourselves, but to everyone. And instead of fixing, then we are just there as a source of um, presence, loving presence, and a healing environment. As Annie Lamott, the wonderful writer, she she has this great line. She says, um, lighthouses... Don't go running around all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there and shine. That's what we're talking about, the joy of being. You don't have to go around saving people. And if you, of course, if you can and you're motivated and that bodhisattva compassionate action can make a difference in the world, fabulous. But to come from a place of being where your own loving presence is a healing energy, this is a real gift. And what we see when we relax into that joy of being is it's not even something that we can own. It's not something that we can take credit for. Hey, check out my being. (laughs) Is your being as good as mine? You know? Is your pure awareness as good as mine? You know? Who's got the better unconditional love? You know? It doesn't make sense. It's simply life moving through us. It's simply awareness that is our natural 
state. That's our natural state. You can call it awareness. You can call it love. You can call it being. It is simply life moving through you. Just one last quick exercise. I did this in one of the groups. Just close your eyes for a moment. And let go of any straining or striving to make anything happen. And for a moment, might take a breath or two, and with the exhale, just relax as much as is available. And then don't even try to take a big breath. Completely relax and feel life moving through you. No effort to make anything happen. Just feel the aliveness as it moves through this form. Nothing to do at all. And feel the awareness or tune into the awareness that knows without you trying to make anything happen. It is simply awareness, awaring. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. If you get just a glimpse of that, of what it's like to stop all doing and completely allow and relax and let life move through you, this is the joy of simply being. I'll close with this Dana Falls poem, another one, about this awareness. Settle into the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do Nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath Awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth.
let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention. Let yourself uh, enjoy the night air, if you'd like. Some walking. Let yourself... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.